I still don't think that one day defines the best surfer of all year round or necessarily and especially this that lowers decides the best surfer of the world in the world it's just not treacherous enough to define the world title and that's just the bottom line so gabriel said he's in talks with coaches right now and he's going to decide soon who his coach will be but I think even if he's not looking for a coach necessarily for the whole year, he really could use one in Australia. He's served, I think, 21 events there throughout his career, and he's only had one final. For him, those are like abysmal results. Welcome to The Drop. My name is Danny Johnson, and this episode we have two interviews. The first is with Chloe Andino, who is currently holed up in an Australian hotel room in the first half of a 14-day quarantine, like the rest of the non-Australian world tour. Chloe is sitting around abiding by the Australian government's COVID-related regulations and waiting to kick off the Australian leg of the tour. So I got him on the phone and Chloe talked me through what it was like on the WSL's secret flight to Australia. He also talked about his methodical approach to the quarantine period and we also spoke about his positive yet very critical take on the WSL's new format for deciding world champions. After that, I chatted to Mikey... Charamella. ...whose recent story on stabmag.com started lighting up our analytics like crazy. The story was titled, Gabriel Medina is seeking a new surf coach. Here's why he split with Charlie after 16 fruitful years. Mikey also talked us through the history of their relationship, the breakdown of the relationship and all the current gossip and the potential rift in the Medina family that has allegedly been as a result of his new relationship uh, with his new wife. We also talked about the role of surf coach in the modern era of competitive surfing and who's the most likely to become Medina's new coach throughout the rest of the Roaring Twenties or at least this next season. We even talked a little bit about love during this interview because we're two modern men in touch with our feelings that are not afraid to be vulnerable in a public forum uh we didn't actually talk about love i'm not even sure if mikey's even capable of love or i don't even know if he actually even has a heart i'm just kidding of course i love mikey and i love his black heart biggest news this week is the release of the third episode of our andy irons documentary series andy irons and the radicals this episode covers the years 97 to 2001 and it spends a lot of time focused on his fiercely competitive relationship with Taj Burrow. He was nasty. If you were in the way and you stood in between him and, and winning, he was he hated you. Andy signed with Billabong in 2000, assembling their famous trilogy of Andy, Joel Parkinson and Taj Burrow under one banner. Which, well, somebody probably should have told Taj Burrow. The first thing I remember about Andy signing with Billabong was I was walking through the uh, Foodland car park and I just heard this pretty heavy Hawaiian voice say, Ho! And I was like looking around going, fuck, oh, that's not me. And I saw and it was Kalar looking at me and he's going, get over here. And I was like, fuck. 
what have I done? I swear I haven't dropped in on anyone or done anything bad. Like, why does Kalar want to talk to me? Um, and he called me over and he just goes, oh, so you and Andy are on the same team now, huh? And I was like, fuck, this is hectic. My brother terrorized Taj. He was so brutal to Taj. <laughs> he, he was such a cunt to me. It's an incredible chunk of surfing and surf history and Andy's life and it's never been told before so uh, like all episodes in this series they are must watches that I can't recommend enough so if you haven't found yourself on stabmag.com signing up for a premium subscription then uh, it's about time you did. There will be a link in the episode description uh, for all the membership details and if you're not across Stab Premium then uh, it it supplies you with weekly premium editorial, deep dive journalism, objective product reviews and how-tos, plus all of Stab's film projects including the back catalogue that are now only available through the paywall. So we're talking Stab in the Darks, the Electric Acid Surfboard Tests, now the Andy Irons and the Radicals series. Uh, and there's, there's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's way more on there and there is also plenty more to come. And for now, let's chat to Kolohe and Dino. Danny? How you doing? Good. How about you? Yeah, good, mate. How'd you go with the test? Uh, it took like 30 seconds. It was minor. Ah, and when do you, when do you find out if you, if you passed? Um, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> on the news. <laughs> Hopefully not on the news. <laughs> Have you had a million of those things at this point? <laughs> um, yeah, I've had a trillion. So many. Yeah. Have you had one? Uh, I've I've only had one. Yeah, and it was it was it was pretty mellow. I don't know. I, I think depending on where you are, that they change how gnarly they are. Like some places, they ram it right up your nose. Was this one like that? Uh, yeah, it wasn't. It was like fifty percent. I had this one in Indo that was so gnarly. I was like scarred from it. <laughs> it was like Asian culture, like thorough, just brain shot. Oh, no. Both nostrils. It was heavy. Oh, shit. How are you feeling in, in general though? Uh, Like my mental health or like do I have a cough? Like, <laughs> yeah, either I guess. Um, pretty good. Yeah, we've we've had a lot of activities uh, to do. Madison and I, my wife, Madison and I, have just we kind of came into it like planned it out as best we could. So we've been pretty busy the first uh, two and a half days. Yeah. So there was a lot of preparation coming into quarantine. Yeah, fully. We just we def- definitely didn't want to just come in blind because I feel like you could get crazy anxiety you know not being able to leave your room so yeah we we mapped out as much as we could you know shows to watch workouts to do uh you know puzzles card games all sorts of stuff the the good thing was we heard that our stove wasn't gonna work and then we got here and it worked so we were like super pumped about that oh so you can make your own food yeah so we um can make our own food we got groceries we got all so eating and my diet's like a huge part of my life or our life. So we were really worried about that. And uh, yeah, so we're stoked that we can cook. 
Were you dreading quarantine? Because I've got to be honest, like I don't know if this makes me a sloth, but I feel like I, I'd be fine in there. Yeah, I wasn't really dreading at all. And actually I was kind of going into it thinking like everyone was complaining about it pretty heavily. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like this most easiest advantage ever if you go into this with a positive attitude. It's like if the waves are like complete shit and everyone's whining and doesn't want to run the event and it's the last day of the waiting period and they're just making you surf it. And everyone and everyone wants the, the contest to be canceled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking run it. <laughs> so that's how I'm kind of going into it. And it's kind of in a way, a way if you approach it right to it's kind of a time to train without getting without surfing getting in the way. If that makes sense? Yeah. Because a lot of the times you could you're training super hard but you're surfing a lot, so you're not really training as hard as you could be. So, um, yeah, I'm just looking at it like that. And are you, are you training the brain in any way in terms of watching footage and visualization or anything like that? Uh, I do a lot of visualization anyways and watch a lot of footage anyways. So, I guess just more of that. I actually, I've never even really read a book. Maybe I've read like two or three in my whole life. Really? And it's, and it's been like a solid decade and a half since I have. So I brought a bunch of books and I'm taking a stab at starting to learn how to read again. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's almost like practice for prison, huh? Like if you, if you ever want to commit a crime down the track or maybe avoid some tax or whatever, you know, you're just kind of getting a sense for, it's almost like a luxury <laughs> prison in there with your wife. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I heard that Leo has a room like on the construction site, like literally like like outside of his door. So I was thinking that's worse than prison. (laughs) (laughs) Just the noises going all day. So I was like, oh, it's pretty bad. At least I'm not that. And then then also there's the perspective of at least we're not Caroline where we, you know, we're able to come and just enjoy it. So I'm just really excited. Yeah. And do you remember that phase in the, I don't know when it was, it was sometime in the noughties when, Kelly was purposefully avoiding surfing in the lead up to events so that when the, the, he would have heats, he was just completely frothing and energized to surf. Do you feel like there's going to be an element of that coming into this first event? Um, I think everyone's going to be really excited to compete for sure and obviously to surf, but I think there is an element of maybe some of the older guys or maybe some of the guys who really like to surf the, the better ways on tour. And I'm not saying Newcastle is like a terrible wave, but it's definitely not J Bay or snapper or whatever. And I mean, it, it can get like that, but the, the odds are it won't. So I think there will be an element of people pretty um, in the negative headspace because they just did two weeks of quarantine and now they're getting out and you, you turn on Newcastle cam today <laughs> and unless you're just absolutely frothing out of your mind, it looks really, really difficult. Yeah. So I think he'll, the people that use that, uh, that can be the most positive will be, you know, and frothing to surf, whatever comes our way, we'll, we'll do the best. Yeah. And so you said that even in the lead up to quarantine that you heard a lot of people um, pretty unhappy about it because Australia has strict laws, a lot stricter than I think most countries that are allowing travel right now. So uh, what percentage of surfers would you say were vocally annoyed uh, about the quarantine? Uh, 
I would say, I mean, the group message was just negativity all day. It was so bad that I didn't even turn it on or look at it because like, I don't need this at all. Um, so I'm not too sure, like percentage wise, I would say it'd be in the 85, 90% range for sure. Shit. And so, yeah. and so w- there's a group text thread of all the surfers. Or does that have WSL officials on it as well? No, I mean it's like a it's like an in parentheses private one, but there's people that work for Stab that are in it, right? <laughs> like I think Stace is in it. Like people that you know Stab, he has a Stab podcast, so yeah, there's like yeah. A, there's like a hundred plus people. So yeah, people were pretty rattled, but I was like, fuck, I'm over surfing being like an Instagram sport. So I was like, let's get it on anywhere, anyhow. Let's do it. You're pretty ready to compete again, huh? <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I'm sick of vlogs and, you know, people thinking they have to do that to make money. Yep. And let's talk about the flight. Was the novelty aspect of having everyone all together on one flight, was that fun in any way or was it is it just a, a regular flight? I don't know. I'd say I'd, I'm somewhere in the middle of like someone who likes to hang out at the competitors area. I don't really like it but I do it sometimes, I guess, at the right time. Um, so it was, to me, it was just like a co- competitor's area playing. Yeah. <laughs> which is pretty funny, I think. I think if we were like, I think if everyone was able to, to like mix among each other and have a good time, then it would have been um, a lot better, even though, I don't, I don't know if I would have been doing that, but the overall morale might have been a little bit better, but everyone was pretty – the rules on the plane were really stiff for some, re- for some reason. I don't know why, like, you know, if someone gets COVID on the plane, chances are everyone's going to get it, right? Yeah, <laughs> no yeah, matter, yeah, that makes sense. No, no matter how, you know, separated we are or whatever. So I don't know um, – if people liked it or not, I don't know. I, I was I was kind of dreading it a little bit, but I get along with everyone, so it wasn't too bad. Is the reason that it's not enjoyable to hang out in a competitors area or on the on that plane, for example, is it the is it the competitive competitiveness between everyone? Because you're all such um, you have to have an element of competitiveness that would essentially not just end in heats; it would bleed over into normal life so is that why it's unenjoyable um yeah for me i I always felt like the competitors area was um not that i don't get along with everyone i get along with everyone and i enjoy being around them but i don't i always felt like i just lost energy like it was like very energy draining but yeah there is an element of of competing and you know second guessing everything that comes out of your mouth or you know, whatever. So I don't know. It's um, an interesting dynamic, but for me, it was just always like I felt like it was really, really draining to to uh, be around your competitors all day, really. <laughs> but yeah. some people love it. Some people, I, I noticed some. You know, some people will just kick kick it there all day and kind of love it. So a lot of stuff you can learn from watching, even just watching the webcasts. True, but um, yeah, yeah. I was actually I was talking to Ronnie Blakey about that once because. He knows that surfers watch the webcast and they watch their heats back, and so that he knows that 
whatever he says in a webcast, especially if he's critical of a surfer or, or a surfer's heat strategy, then they're going to hear it and, and then, you know, he's going he's gonna to probably hear about it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like when the guys, when the, co- the guys commentating have an opinion and they speak it. It makes it more entertaining and kind of cool, you know. Hey, who flew first class on the, on the WSL secret flight? Uh, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to keep it secret, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. I flew it with my wife. Yeah, and and was that uh, <laughs> is that was that an interesting dynamic sitting in in first class while other you know other competitors are walking past you to to the back of the plane? Um, I kind of snuck in last, um, but then everyone saw me get off the plane first. Uh, it's kind of weird, you know, it's kind of, I've, I've always been someone who's been always tried to read the room and be conscious of people's feelings and where they're at in their life and see from their point of view also. So yeah, it's definitely weird. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel lucky to be able to do that and have that freedom. But, uh, yeah, it was weird for for me for sure. (laughs) Yeah. You know, all I could think about when, when I heard about that flight was, um, I don't know if you ever heard about the story with Coca-Cola, how they used to have this secret recipe for the drink and there was only ever four people in the world that knew the recipe at one time. And so those four people, they would never let all fly on the one plane together because if the plane went down, then the recipe would effectively be, it would go down with them. And all I was thinking about with that flight is like, holy shit, that's a lot of pro surfing on one aeroplane right there. Like if that flight goes down, then the um, there's a huge chunk of the tour and the WSL that have just vanished, you know? Yeah, it'd almost be like surfing would be done, kind of. I mean, fuck, there's every heavy hitter on the flight, <laughs> pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Other than a few <laughs> a few Australians, I think um, pro surfing yeah. would be pretty much. I guess we'd have a lot of Australian uh, world champs for a while after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been weird. It would be like the day surfing died. <laughs> yeah. With the Australian leg losing Snapper and Bells and we've kept Margaret's but, and we're also adding Merriweather, Narrabeen and Rottnest Island. How do you think the title race will be affected? Um, shit, I don't even, uh, I haven't even thought of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, the classic waves, it seems like very consistently the same guys will do good at, you know, like a Bells Beach or even at a Snapper or, um, but that being said, I don't think surfing is predictable enough to even say that really, because it's so hard to predict. And, but I think these first two spots will be very interesting. I think, well, I think honestly, we'll get some swell, but if it'll be good conditions, I don't know. So it's kind of anything that happened really. And I think everything's still so up in the air it'll just be really rad if they could crown a champion this year. And um, it sounds like the WSL's gun-ho for that and tip of the cap to them for that. And what do you know at this point in terms of the amount of events, the amount of events required to crown a world champion and just the rest of the tour year? I mean, on the website, it says Brazil and J-Bay after this, which seems close to impossible just for me. <laughs> so hopefully I'm guessing maybe they have 
plan B and C for that to have a couple events or maybe, or maybe even have a break and we could do the Olympics and they'll have five events, um, in the bag. And then hopefully we can maybe I heard you could go to Tahiti or at least you could last year. So maybe do Tahiti surf ranch, that'll be your seven events. And then lowers for their, uh, super bowl surfing or I don't know the exact words of it, but, uh, yeah. So I don't know, kind of a makeshift year really, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Mm. And for the Super Bowl of surfing, or is that what it's called? Did you just come up with that? Well, no, but that was their kind of model, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, when when, yeah. when you had the conversation with Mick Fanning and and Sam McIntosh on Unplugged, you were really outspoken about uh, just in opposition to the WSL's new end of year world title surf off concept are you are you still just as opposed now um not really i mean i think for me having goals and just thinking like okay you know a goal to, to make that top five and be in that event i think it'll be a really rad lead up and day for me if i can make that goal or you know make that day and accomplish that goal so i got really excited about that point of it but i still don't think that one day defines the best surfer of all year round or necessarily and especially this that lowers decides the best surfer of the world in the world and lowers is my home break obviously i owe a lot of credit um and i love the wave but it's just not treacherous enough to define the world title and that's just the bottom line. So those just those two points, really. I was 100% with you when you were against it. And I, I did think the WSL needed to do something to make the tour as digestible and entertaining as possible. But with this change, it, it kind of comes at the expense of the legitimacy of the world title in some, in some ways because, you know, you could win 10 of 11 events and then injure yourself before the surf off and you're still the best surfer of that year, you know, and, and that's an extreme exaggeration, but like that happens sometimes where people get out to crazy leads in and they, they rip in a variety of conditions and, you know, and I think people often bring up the examples of like say basketball or football or, or other sports where there's playoff series to decide the world champion, but they're, they're all team sports and I don't think there's a major individual sport out there that decides world champions with a sudden death playoff yeah yeah exactly and i don't i think the main thing for me that really bums me out and i i feel like it's this across the whole sport at the moment and that's why i feel like it just really needs to get back to normal is that the history of the sport is really gone down the toilet and you have these incredible matches throughout a year you know, even leading up to the Pipeline Masters where it's the trickiness of European beach breaks that you have to manage during a world title mm. and understanding those and what comes with that. And even at La Graviere and the 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 banks of Fossagor, all that stuff's just gone down the drain, really. And that's what really makes me sad because it's all this leading up to it and then it's at Pipe and it's that's that's the most deadly wave in the world. That's the best wave in the world. And it leads up to that and you have someone crowned there. You have someone that's going to get chaired up 
at pipeline. And that's been the model and that's the most legitimate way to do it. So that just really makes me sad and it's going to be at lowers and it just like, it doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense in my mind. So that's really yeah. all I have to say about it. But, but I mean, they're making, they're trying to make it watchable or sellable. And, you know, for me, I was like, fuck it, you know, if I'm going to make that top five and it's going to be pretty awesome for me. So let's do it. Yeah. And, and do you have any sense of, the sentiment from other surfers on tour around the world title surf off? Uh, no, I just thought of all that on my own. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you haven't like you, you haven't spoke to other competitors and gotten a sense of whether they're into it. Um, surely that message board was lighting up when, um, when these changes were happening. Yeah, I don't go on the message board really. I just kind of chip around and sometimes I try to be funny on it and then I feel like maybe I'm being a smart ass too much <laughs> and then I get ashamed of myself and then I get scared of myself and then I just don't even look at it. <laughs> so. <laughs> and, and so and what are your what are your goals for this year? And obviously the goal is to win the world title, but what's your unique path to that um endpoint? Um, for me, well, I've tried the, the grit your teeth and work harder than the opposing competition so much. And I haven't won an event yet. So I kind of feel like, man, maybe it's not, maybe that's not the way, you know, maybe I, maybe instead of being so scared to lose, maybe I'll go out competing to win. So I was, that was kind of my goal leading into 2020. And I, and for me, I just want to surf freely and not scared of losing and I guess being happy with the challenge and excited for the challenge instead of so worried about it because ultimately my life's great. And, uh, you know, when I go out there and compete and it doesn't go my way, I'm not going to lose a limb or a family member or my house going to lose a limb or a family member or my house. Thank you, Kolohe. And now let's move along to Mikey. Charamella. I put that sound effect um, over his name as just a personal joke because I used to fuck up his name all the time. And Mikey didn't really seem to care, but I just used to feel pretty bad anyways. And once I realized I was doing it, but Mikey doesn't really care about anything, really. At least he doesn't, he doesn't tend to show it. He's incredibly unflappable, which is probably what makes him such a such an entertaining rider for for a long time Mikey's been one of Stab's most prolific riders and he's definitely not afraid to take his critical opinions and make them public and in doing so he's definitely outraged a lot of pro surfers over the years he's definitely set some um some bridges ablaze but he just he doesn't care he's he does his job and and um, and that's what, yeah, that's why he's just such an entertaining writer that I guess that's also why pro surfers come back and read his work. Of course, if you are a subscriber to Stab Podcast, then you already know Mikey from the other podcasts in this feed, Stab Cusp, that Mikey does with his co-host Stace Galbraith. Let's chat to Mikey about his story. Gabriel Medina is seeking a new coach. Here's why he split with Charlie after 16 fruitful years. Hey, 
How's New York going? Uh, we had a warm week, which was really nice. Snow is finally melting away. It feels like spring is a coming. I, I heard that when when you're in a city and the snow melts away, that there's, it just uncovers a lot of dog shit. <laughs> that is uh, very true. I'm not in the city, but it's true in my own backyard where we have two dogs that regularly take shits. And yeah, <laughs> you would like hope that they like disintegrate, but they don't. At all. They just get preserved by the snow and then it just the snow melts and it just stinks, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's like um, Jurassic Park, except it's not a <laughs> not a mosquito. Should I start recording anytime soon? Yeah, yeah, hit record. All right, I am on. Big news this week regarding Medina's departure from his long-term coach and his stepdad, Charlie Medina, and you wrote the story about it on StabMag.com. And before we get stuck into the details around the split, can you just please give us a history of their personal and working relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Gabriel Medina's parents, biological parents split when he was really young and his mom remarried a man named Charles Saldana Rodriguez, I believe. Sorry if I butchered that. Um, But Charles, or Charlie, as we all know him, um, owned a surf shop and was like an avid surfer. It was like his passion. And I don't think he was ever a great surfer or a pro by any means, but it was just he lived, ate, and breathed surfing. And so I would imagine as kind of a way of bonding and ingratiating himself with his new stepson, Gabriel, he brought him surfing. And, um, you know, I haven't really heard them talk about it so I don't want to speculate too much but I imagine Gabby liked it and he was also probably very good at it and that led to Charlie kind of just saying okay well we're going to do this we're going to make you a great surfer and then it probably became apparent to him pretty quickly how great Gabriel could be so from that point on they traveled the world together going to you know every event possible um I think we all first saw Gabriel Medina when he was 15 years old and he won the Quicksilver King of the Groms event in France on these little just dreamy waist-high wedges and he had a perfect heat in the final against Kyle Belly of all people, hmm. um, which is pretty funny when you consider kind of their historical timeline. Um, and yeah, it was just basically like, holy shit, who is this kid? Um, he was just so head and shoulders above everyone. And he actually had a really cool little style and was just doing basically like, I don't know, just little tricks in heats that like, you know, like Superman's and and stuff like that, that you wouldn't normally do if you were just trying to win. It really looked like he was putting on a show and it was pretty impressive. And then a year later, he'd go on to win a major QS event in Brazil as a 16 year old. It was like a 6,000, which back then I think was the highest rated QS event. And at 17, he qualified for the tour. And that was the year when they were doing the half-year, basically, entry. So if you did well in the first half of the QS, you could qualify for the second half of the CT. And in that half a season, he won two events, France and San Francisco. And um, yeah, Charlie was there for all of it, and he's been his coach for uh, 16 years total. So it's pretty unbelievable that, uh, well, first of all, what they've achieved, and second of all, that it's coming to an end. Throughout Medina's career, Charlie's head's just been something that surf fans have loved seeing and commenting on. 
he's he always looks like to me he always looks like he's just woken up he's kind of got this um like <laughs> sleepy expression on his face and and then yet there's obviously the the passion that he's famous for but like to, just woken up from a nap yeah 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 because he's like he's like in that real confused state <laughs> yeah. like where am i like what <laughs> what happened yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and then you know and then he has just these ferocious moments of, moments of passion you know like he can barely stand on the beach he's like wading in waste deep water sometimes just like trying to contain his excitement and then you know he's he's dove into the water um to celebrate Medina's wins. Was is there any particular moments during any of the events that have like defined their working relationship to you? Well, obviously he's just been like, you know, Gabriel's pillar. Like he's there for all of it. So I mean, it's it's hard to even remember to a certain extent. It's hard to remember singular moments because every moment when I think of Gabriel, it's also with Charlie. Yeah. Um, but to that end, there there were a couple moments that do stand out. Like, you know. Back in 2017, I think, um, Charlie actually did something that was never officially revealed, but he did something that was so, I guess, egregious in one way or another that the WSL decided to suspend him from, I think, the first like three events of the following season. Um, so that was probably the only stretch when he was not actually at events physically with Gabriel, but I would imagine he still traveled to those places. I don't know for sure. Um, but that was one thing that you don't normally hear of. I don't know if I've ever heard of a coach being suspended before by the WSL. And then the other big one that is my absolute favorite. And I think just like truly defines Charlie's genius and also passion is, you know, is at the 2019 pipe masters and Gabriel Medina was in a world title race with Italo Ferreira. And I think it was finals day, but it was one of the first heats of the day. It was maybe like the quarters of the round before the quarters. And again, it was Gabriel versus Kaio Ibelli. And to give even more context, the event before, Gabriel had basically burned Kaio at Portugal in a heat that he had basically, he'd easily won already. There was like only a few minutes left and Gabriel had him like combo beat outright, like it was over. And he lost that heat to Kayo based on a really stupid priority error, like just really, really, really bad. And so he was carrying that going into this heat at Pipeline, and it came to a similar situation at the end of the heat where Gabriel basically had Kayo, I don't know if it was technically comboed, but it was in a position where Kayo needed a really big score at the end, and the waves were not very good. And I think there's about a minute left, and Kayo had priority. And this, as the story goes, and this story is from both Kyle and Gabriel, so I'm sure it's true, Charlie was on the shoreline yelling for Gabriel to burn Kyle on the next wave, screaming at the top of his lungs, burn Kyle, burn Kyle, in Portuguese, of course, I don't know what those words would be. But anyway, Gabriel heard him, and you know, having that much faith in Charlie, um, I don't know if this was something that they had rehearsed beforehand, if it's always been in their playbook as kind of like a, you know, a trick play at the end of a heat, given this situation, if it worked out mathematically. But um, Gabriel trusted Charlie enough to say, OK, he must know what he's saying, so I'm going to do it. So Gabriel famously burned Kayo. This one. Oh, it's a pipeline wave. Oh, Medina. He did it again. What is going on? What happened? This is outrageous. 35 seconds to go. Oh, I mean, absolute shock. has just taken off. And as far as we know, Kai Belli was holding priority. 
it looked that way. The pee was there, and Gabrielle, t- I, 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 I don't know what to say. Really. I'm absolutely baffled because that is either one of those brain snaps that will cost you a world title twice in one year. He looks at Gabrielle. He, I mean, at Kyo, he says something. He almost looks like he knows what he's done. What this has, has come here? to an end. This heat has just come to an end, and we are waiting to find out what the panel's decision is going to be here. The rule was at that time, if you drop in on someone with priority, you lose one whole wave. So Gabriel gave up one whole wave, but in that way he blocked Kayo, and Kayo didn't have enough time to get back out to get another wave and potentially win the heat. So Gabriel ended up winning the heat. He came in and was you know, pretty unapologetic about it. He said, look, this is I'm just following the rules. I, I read the rules. I knew how the rules worked. My stepdad did the math on the beach. He told me to go, and I went. And um, since then, they've actually had to create a rule where if you burn someone in the last five minutes of a CT heat uh, with like a priority interference, you actually lose both of your waves. Um, And we actually saw this happen this year uh, at the 2020 Pipeline Masters between um, John Florence and Kelly Slater. They were actually having a really good heat and Kelly was still in the heat and he needed like, I think, a nine to win. And um, John John had priority at the end of the heat, and this really good backdoor wave came, and Kelly, basically, he, he'd lost the heat because it was the last wave of the heat, so he just decided to drop in on John John, got a wave that might have been the score were it his wave to catch, but he ended up with a zero-point heat total in a heat that he probably would have had, like a 14 or 15-point heat total. Um, so, yeah, anyway, back to Charlie and Gabriel. That was just like their, I think that was their pinnacle Unfortunately, Gabriel didn't go on to win that event. I think that really would have cemented that moment as like the greatest competitive surfing moment ever, maybe. Um, but either way, it's still great to think about. And and yeah, I just think that Charlie should be commended for that because it's, it's awesome. That's like peak competitive surfing to me. Yeah, that was one of the greatest strategic moves that we've ever seen. And, and we'll probably never see it again because of the rule change. But that was, that was definitely a highlight. I love that. Um, that moment, and I don't know if you've if you've seen the Tiger Woods documentary, but uh, it spends a lot of time focused on a similar father slash slash coach dynamic, and it must be extremely hard to maintain a healthy dual relationship, both coach and and father, while achieving the highest level of success and the pressures that come with it. Were there, were there any noticeable signs that you're aware of prior to? Gabby's announcement that indicated their relationship was anything but solid? Uh, well, it depends on whether or not you believe the Brazilian tabloids. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, this isn't something that we really felt comfortable covering because we're so far removed from it. There's obviously, like, the language barrier and there's also just the, like, you know, Stab is famous for doing tabloid stuff, but... It's typically when we have like an in that we trust to a certain degree, you know, mm-hmm. and we weren't going to just take these random Brazilian, um, you know, periodicals and, and spread them as truth. But yeah, they, you know, and again, we don't know if any of this is true, but what we read is basically that Gabriel's new relationship with a woman named Yasmin Brunette, who I think they started dated actually in like early 2020 mm-hmm. or maybe late 2019. And they that relationship very quickly progressed, and they ended up getting married, I think, in January or maybe even February of 2021. Yeah, it was five so weeks ago. Like roughly a year. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, so within like the, a year, I, they I, got married. I looked it up and, and uh, not that this is the definitive timeline, but based on Instagram, she first appeared on Gabriel's Instagram 45 weeks ago and they were married 40 weeks later. That was the, or at least that's um, via Instagram, Instagram announcements. They, they were married 40 weeks later. So it was like a really short courting period. Yeah. And I think you got to give maybe like a, I don't know, like a two month grace period for like famous people posting somebody else on their Instagram. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a minimum probably. So yeah, you just, you basically say that they were together for a year before they got married. And um, that's pretty quick, you know? And and I think um, what the Brazilian tabloids were saying, if I translated it correctly, which I probably did, hey, is that I've um, actually got you know, um, I've actually got a Google Translate of the opening of that article um, that goes. It, it, it went like this, so you have to excuse the um, the any errors that might be via Google Translate. Obviously, it's a pretty uh, imperfect system, but it said. The astral good vibes, which usually surrounds those who live in direct contact with nature, seems distant from the relationship of Yasmin Brunette, Gabriel Medina, and his parents. The climate of peace and love between them, seen in the photos they took last year in the Maldives, altogether ended in several unfollows on Instagram. Neither the surfer nor Yasmin follow Charles Medina and Simone Medina, Gabriel's stepfather, whom he also called his father and his mother. The two also stopped participating in the networks of model and her son. Ooh. Huge. Unfollow, you hate to see it. <laughs> you know, and, and Gabriel Gabriel was pretty famous too for his unfollows. He unfollowed Stab, I think maybe four years ago for something that um, I, I believe, I don't want to get this wrong, but I believe Jed Smith might have written. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it was. And um, if it wasn't Jed Smith, it was probably me. <laughs> and uh, he also unfollowed Coyote Belly following the Portugal incident. So we see kind of a history of, you know, Gabriel's not happy with someone. He does unfollow them. So this this does have a precedent. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess we do need to, you know, consider that although tabloid, this could be um, representative of a, a real rift between Charlie and Gabriel. Um, yeah. And I mean... It's 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 not. And while this is like a very tabloid conversation to enter, we we all know that like the chemicals of early love and the hormone hormones that are going on can just be so life altering. They send you pretty much temporarily insane. And so, if you like tie the knot with someone before you've transitioned out of that honeymoon period, it's it's generally not a, a good idea. And I was thinking about that in the lead up to our chat, so I looked it up. And, and it's statistically proven as well. Like if you, look at, if you look at any of the studies that have been done about a short courting period, like you, there's a much higher chance that you will break up. Um, there's one, there was what was, there was one in, I got it written down somewhere. There's one in 2015, a study in the Journal of Economic Inquiry. It found that couples who dated for one to two years were 20% less likely to later get a divorce than those who dated less than a year. And couples who dated for three years or longer were 39% less likely. So I just think if, um, you know, if if Medina's parents with their maturity had any sense of this and they attempted to give Gabriel um, advice that was interpreted anyways disapproval 
while he's temporarily insane and doped up on dopamine and oxytocin. It's easy to imagine how, you know, this could have been a, a riff in the family. Yeah, especially. And, you know, the other side of it too is then you have, you know, your partner. Um, it's, I think we've all been in a position where our partner didn't like a friend or didn't like a family member or something like that. And it's like, you really feel pulled in two directions. Mm. And, you know, it's like, do you go with this person that you met a year ago, but you feel passionately in love with, and you could see yourself spending your life with, or do you go with your parents who are guaranteed, you know, always have your best interests at heart, at least hopefully, and, um, you know, you've been with them forever and they'll, and they'll be with you forever for as long as they, yeah, it's, it's a really hard one. So I feel for Gabriel here if he did feel like yeah. he had to make a choice. Um, that's a pretty heavy choice to make considering, you know, how close he was with his family and, and hopefully still is. Um, but, you know, love, it makes us do crazy things. Yeah, it sure does. And it's not an uncommon story. Um, you know, Jack Robinson's relationship with his dad growing up was famous and infamous. And he recently got married and, and parted ways with his dad as a, as, a, as a traveling partner and coach, or I'm not sure what exactly um, the relationship was there, but um, it's actually really common in surfing. You've got Carissa Moore and her dad have a, a, a coach-father relationship, uh, Bronte McCauley and her dad, Dave McCauley have um, that going on. Who else is there, Mikey? I'm sure there's more. Felipe. Oh, Felipe and his dad. Yeah, that's an ongoing one. So it's, it's a really common thing that a, a lot of people are trying to balance and, and it's, it's, it has to be tricky. Yeah, I mean, I can say from firsthand experience, and this is, mind you, at a level <laughs> that is it, it, the opposite of successful, <laughs> but I grew up with a dad who is very much invested in my, you know, athletic success in surfing in particular. And um, yeah, you know, it's it's hard because they, it all comes from a place of love, you know, but it's not necessarily um, communicated in a way that feels like love. And, um, yeah, it's just really hard to separate like what this person's role is in my life, what Mm -hmm. I want their role to be in my life and, and how your, you know, father, son or whatever it is relationship is impacted by this kind of outside source of influence that they're trying to have on you. So yeah, it's, (laughs) it's tough. I can't imagine if if it, if there was like millions of dollars and world championships on the line as well, (laughs) like that's just a whole other level. Yeah. Oh man, and it's it's impossible for those relationships to exist in silos. Like there is going to be extreme amounts of bleed between them. Uh, and it's and I guess the fascinating thing about this, while we are entering a realm of gossip, to step back into the conversation strictly of competitive surfing, like Gabby's now, um, he's looking for a new coach. And this could hugely impact his run of success. He's in the prime of his career. He's two world titles in. Uh, who are some of the people that you have been thinking will be considered for this role as his coach? First and foremost, I'm really I'm deeply offended that he hasn't reached out to Stace Galbraith. I called Stace <laughs> early to find out if it might be him, and he said no. Um, so that's really disappointing. I guess Gabby doesn't listen to the stab cusp uh, or at. <laughs> Yeah, I really thought he'd get the call up, but um, unfortunately not. Well, maybe it's it's Stace's relationship with you, Mikey, that is the reason he hasn't. <laughs> Shit, I'm holding him back. No, nah, we 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 got Stace a few gigs with you know WSL commentator. I think it evens out. Um, 
But okay, so my first thought, or actually this is, I'll, I'll give Stace credit for this as well. This was Stace's thought. Uh, but our first thought was like, oh my God, how brilliant would it be if Gabby decided to just bury the hatchet with Glenn Micro Hall after yes. the 2015 incident? And Glenn just, they just became the most dominant, like, surfer coach pairing in, in history. Like that, because Glenn has brought, you know, people who n- never really had a shot at any sort of, like, actual competitive success in terms of, like, world title, at least, and brought them there, yep. a la Matt Wilkinson. And he's obviously worked a lot with Tyler Wright to actually achieve world champions and i can't imagine what he might be able to do with a talent like gabriel yeah that would be that would be incredible and just to recap for anyone who doesn't remember or isn't aware of the the incident you're referring to uh they had a they had a a run-in in in the water a little bit of a a scuffle and then medina got in the webcast and and basically threatened glenn micro hall with violence if it ever happened again right and said some swear words is that is that am i remembering that correctly yeah, more or less. Gabriel said, I think if Glenn ever say fuck you to me again, I teach him some, and then it gets cut off by a very nervous Pete Mel. <laughs> so we, we, we didn't exactly get to see it play out all the way, but it was a great moment in surfing history. I think that was the same day that Freddie Patashia uh, just yeah, absolutely was, planted himself it, on the rock. It was almost purposely. an entire waiting period so, yeah. of quarter of a foot on shore. Um, conditions and people were so pumped up and frustrated they extended the waiting period and then and it was also the year <laughs> that the wsl became the wsl so it was like just post this like noah dean thing at the uh surfer pole awards and then yeah they had like the terrible waves and it was just like this culmination of all this frustration and angst <laughs> and it yeah. came out in very many beautiful funny ways that will go down in surfing history yeah, for sure. And so who else came to mind for you um, as potential new coaches for Medina? So I think a more realistic one might be Mick Fanning's old coach, Phil McNamara, just because I know how close that Gabriel and Mick are. So I think that like if Gabriel needed help with this sort of resource, Mick would be one of the first people that he would reach out to. And with Mick obviously no longer on tour, he, I think he would feel totally comfortable saying, hey, you know, I had a lot of success with with Phil and I think that you could too. Um, we obviously saw like the competitive machine that Mick turned into throughout his career and Gabriel who arguably has, you know, even greater talent than Mick ever did. I can't imagine what he would be able to achieve with someone as knowledgeable and successful as Phil. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Any others? Um, you know, I thought would somebody of Gabriel's kind of like talent level, would he be able to pull Jake Patterson out of his sunscreen fueled retirement? <laughs> um, as we know, Jake basically was a, you know, he's a coach for a lot of CT and QS surfers, but he decided to hang it up and, and go all into his, we all, we are feel good ink um, business. But I wonder like if he would just see not just like dollar sign wise, but like he's just such a passionate competitive surf fan yeah he had access to the uh, who i would call the second best surfer in the world and had a chance to basically see if he could put his knowledge and intellect and get gabriel past the person who really is the best surfer in the world being john i think that would be for snake the ultimate validation because he was always that guy who would say that he's not the most talented but he's going to work harder and he's going to outsmart people yeah and i think if he could achieve that you know vis-a-vis gabriel against john that would be like the greatest 
feather in his cap. Yeah, I actually, I had the same thought and I texted Jake. I, I said, are you going to be Medina's um, new coach? And no reply, which obviously means he Ooh. is in talks with Medina or um, he's open to the idea or I guess uh, other than that, he hates my guts. So we don't really know how to read that, <laughs> no reply. But um, I think Jake would be an incredible option. And, and um, these are all, I guess, these are all people that um, speak, speak English as their first language. And I wonder if given the intimate relationship and, and, that, and you know, even, even though Gabriel's English is great, whether talking in your, in your second language would be um, potentially limiting in, in, as a as a role of coach. What about Leandro Dora, Yago's dad, who coached Adriana de Souza to a world championship, yeah. which could also be argued as an incredible feat. Yeah, yeah, that that's he could be an option. So I guess it's um, we won't know who shows up on tour alongside Gabriel at this uh, uh, at this stage. There's been no, um, there's not been nothing to base it off. But I guess the next question is, does he need a coach? What and what does he need from a coach? Well, that was what I was kind of getting at. It. Like, you know, Charlie has been his quote-unquote coach, but I can't imagine that there was really much, like, technical advice given in terms of his, like, actual surfing, yeah. right? Because Charlie's not an expert surfer himself. Not to say that you necessarily have to be to be able to understand the mechanics of surfing, but I don't know. There's just a level of, like, you kind of have to have experienced it and done it yourself to, like, truly get yeah. it. You know, and obviously no coach in the world is going to be able to do airs like Gabriel or whatever. But I think that the place where he could probably um, find some more success would be on the face of the wave, especially front side. Um, so I wonder like, is a coach? Yeah, basically it's the same. I have the same question as you is Gabriel looking for someone who can actually give him technical advice on his surfing, or is it more about giving him the confidence and strategy that he needs to beat other guys and he just handles all the surfing on his own? I don't really know what he needs. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing for sure is that everyone on tour now has a coach and that can be loosely defined as coach or it could be... It could, it could be interpreted as just support network. Like coaches offer such a, a huge range of um, services and support and help to a professional surfer. But I, was, I actually chatted to Stace Galbraith, your CUSP's uh, co-host in the lead up to this chat. And he spent so much time on tour. So I wanted to get his insight of, of um, you know, like how prolific is our coaches on the tour. And he said that nearly every single surfer on tour has a coach in some form or another and even people like Kelly Slater who famously have not had a coach he's he's for many years he's had belly there with him and even nowadays that they don't have a direct working relationship by Quicksilver that they're still whispering to each other in events and and every single every single person even John John prior to Ross Williams had B Durbridge and prior to that had um, Sean Ward who works for Hurley uh, working there closely with them at some level and and he said that the only person he's ever seen um, in the modern era show up without a coach is Wade Carmichael, who came second in the Brazil event and was just showing up, you know, carrying his own boards, walking home on his own, didn't have anyone there to caddy for him, was just asking anyone if they would, if they would help out. And, you know, and he made it all the way to the final. But he said, other than that, 
nearly every single person is there with a, a coach or some sort of support network. So it's pretty, it's pretty safe to say that he will have a, he will have a coach in, in some way, shape or form and, and you probably need one in the modern era. Yeah, I mean, especially going into, like, I don't know, I, Gabriel said he's in talks with coaches right now and he's going to decide soon who his coach will be. But I think um, even if he's not looking for a coach necessarily for the whole year, he really could use one in Australia. Um, you know, he's served, I think, 21 events there throughout his career and he's only had one final. Um, and for him, those are like abysmal results. So yeah, Snapper, Bells, and, and Margaret's are not his forte. And I guess in a sense, luckily for him, Snapper and Bells are now off the schedule. They're going to two beach breaks, which we know he's pretty dominant mm. at. Um, so that could help, but still, yeah, just somebody, at least for those, those four events could be really helpful for him, I think. Yeah. And, and I think your suggestion with Phil McNamara is, is, is such a great one. I mean, he was one of like, obviously, Surf coaching kind of started uh, one of the it's um, one of the earliest versions of it was Derek Hine in the in the eighties coaching the Billabong team eighties and nineties and and then in the modern era Phil McNamara was actually one of the first full time coaches that were traveling with people he started traveling with Mick in two thousand and three and then Mick went on to win his maiden world title in two thousand and seven which you know I guess really transformed everyone's approach to tour life mick did that with his training but he also did that with his coaching yeah and i feel like um turtle from north shore really gets overlooked <laughs> when it comes to this coaching conversation because he said the only thing that actually matters in surfing and it's when the wave breaks here don't be there and that's basically my whole mantra every time i paddle out and i i've been ripping so <laughs> i've been ripping i've been ripping i've been ripping, I've been ripping. <laughs> Thank you, Mikey, and thanks for listening. That's all we've got for this week. We are on Spotify nowadays. If I don't know if that's of any use to you. If you're already listening, you've probably already figured out how to do so, but if you prefer to listen on Spotify, Stab Podcast are now up on that channel as well. Please reach out if you have any suggestions, you want to throw any questions in the mix, if you want to design any sound bites or anything, any contributions to the show. My, na- my name is Eric. My email is danny at stabmag.com and uh, we'll see you next week. Actually, like, first of all, that was a really bad call for the comp, you know, like... We waited like 10 days, we extended two days for a guy waves like this and um, I think KP didn't do a really good job, but I hope he, ca- he can get better. And um, second was the interference, you know, um, I, one day I'll try to understand this new rule. And uh, the third is um, next time Glenn say fuck you to me, I'll, I'll teach him some better Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. <laughs> well, back up to you boys. Uh, you know, not not a happy man.